Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today, I'm talking to Michelle Kennedy, the highly inspiring founder of Peanut. Peanut is a social platform connecting like-minded women across fertility and motherhood. Before founding Peanut, Michelle moved from a prestigious law firm job to general counsel and deputy CEO. She was a founding board member of dating site Bumble, and in 2016, she started Peanut. Since then, she's raised $23 million from two VC funds, and today over 1.6 million women are on her platform. In this episode, Michelle talks about why her mom still introduces her as a lawyer, what she learned from Bumble's huge success, and how she turned product obsession into growth. Michelle, where did you grow up and how was it like? So I grew up in Peterborough, which is about an hour and a half outside of London, kind of uh, East Anglia, I think is the right way to define it. I grew up, I suppose, pretty like normal childhood. My dad is an electrician and my mum worked a couple of part-time jobs to kind of keep us going and support us and make it so that I could do, um, I suppose, other stuff outside of school, like piano or whatever it was, but definitely a working class, like grafting family. Um, I'm an only child. So um, that was meant that I spent a lot of time either um, kind of prolonged periods of time playing on my own or uh, with friends and my friends very quickly became family and those friends that I went to school with, most of them have moved down to London and they're still my best friends today. So I suppose pretty standard in that way. I went to a comprehensive school and was quite geeky, actually. I've always been quite geeky and kind of worked hard and always had an opinion, but I, I definitely wasn't one of the, the cool kids. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I have a very strict Irish mom. Um, and so I definitely wasn't allowed to do what the cool kids were doing, put it that way. Okay. <laughs> and did your parents influence you in terms of business or entrepreneurship in any way? Do you know, I have to be honest and say that was just not a route that was presented to me growing up. My parents kind of in that typical way that when you were kind of coming from that working class mentality, I think it was very much make sure you do better than us. So work hard and get a profession. So it was always about get a profession, um, whether that is to be a lawyer or an accountant or a doctor or a teacher. But that was kind of the world that I was presented with. I really didn't know anything about being a founder or an entrepreneur or even anything outside of those very traditional career options. And so for me, 
knowing what I know now, you know, if any of my kids turned around and said, oh, you know, I'd like to be a lawyer, that's cool, that's great, but I'd love them to understand how much more there is and the other opportunities. It was just something I didn't know about. So I'm really terrible at science. So that was out and my maths is developing, let's say that. Um, and so that left me with um, lawyer. And so I, that was it from, from a really young age. My focus was get to law school and, and become a lawyer. I used to watch lots of Ali McBeal for anyone who mm-hmm. remembers that. Um, and awesome. it, and all, of, all of those kind of shows. And, and that was my kind of image of what it was going to be. I thought it was going to be very glamorous. But obviously, the more you kind of get stuck into the law, particularly criminal law, you realize that actually it's not quite what it is. And so I ended up qualifying into corporate law and becoming an M&A lawyer. And your parents must have felt enormously proud. For sure. I mean, if you ask my mum, she'll still tell you I'm a lawyer. <laughs> so <laughs> never mind anything else that's happened. My mum will definitely still tell you that I'm a lawyer. And yeah, it was, I mean, it was, a, it was a big defining moment for, for me and, and my family, for sure. And I suppose it's always something where I've taken a little bit of comfort in terms of if this all goes wrong, at least I could always go back to that. And yeah, that, that was kind of it. I, I definitely, learning about entrepreneurship is something that I've done much kind of on the job, surrounding myself with people and probably working with Andre at Badu really kind of opened my eyes to that. And before that, you joined a very prestigious law firm and you said you focused on M&A. How was that like? You know, you'll have to ask them. I don't know if I was the world's <laughs> best M&A lawyer. Um, I, I, certainly what I, I lacked in, in aptitude for, for law, I made up for in, in kind of hard slog. You know, I, when you're doing M&A, particularly as a junior lawyer, you're there into the early hours kind of for, for prolonged periods of time when you're on deals and transactions. And, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I think that what I enjoyed most was probably not the part that I was meant to. What I enjoyed most was kind of doing due diligence and being stuck into another company and really learning and understanding what made that business tick. And that was the most exciting part. So when a client asked me to go and work in-house for them and set up their legal function it was biotech which wasn't necessarily something I was crazy passionate about but I loved this company I kind of loved all of the acquisitions we were doing and I really felt connected to every single business we'd acquired because I'd kind of been on that journey so it was a no-brainer to go and work for them and, and, and I absolutely loved it I think probably what I stopped loving is when we were doing less acquisition and more kind of getting into the day-to-day of an in-house function at a, a biotech company. And, you know, that for me was probably less exciting, although always the driver was learning about this business, going to board meetings, understanding the dynamics there and learning, you know, from the CFO and working next to him. And it was, it was brilliant. I, I loved that. And then one of the lawyers that I used to work for, contacted me and said, listen, there's a, a guy with a dating website who, who needs in-house counsel. Do you want to meet him and think about going to work with him? And my immediate answer was no, absolutely not. Did not want to work in dating. Um, it was totally different. Like it's 2010, totally different landscape. In my head, I was thinking about Match.com and eHarmony. Mm. I certainly wasn't even thinking about tech, actually, because the whole tech infrastructure, particularly in Europe, was looked very different. 
And so I was kind of dubious, but trusted the lawyer and um, went to meet Andre and probably it changed my life forever. So how was the company like? What, what stage was the company when you joined? Badoo is one of those companies where they had one PE investor who had come on kind of early doors, but it was kind of three or four years in. And as I said, it was a web platform. You know, this, we're talking kind of pre-app. And I think we had some mobile web and I think we had some WAP actually at that stage. But anyway, it was 52 million users used this product that wow. I'd never heard of. And I couldn't get my head around it. I couldn't understand how there was a website that all these people were using that I'd never heard of, that kind of as you start playing around with it was a bit gamey. It was very sticky. It was dynamic. Everything kept changing on it. And it was this very small crew um, of engineers in a small office in Denmark Street in Soho. And it was kind of exhilarating. It was like nothing I'd ever seen. Everyone was in jeans, obviously. Um, no, no kind of law firm or kind of biotech there. And I knew absolutely nothing about what they were doing and kind of went from feeling like, you know, most things to being the most stupid person in the room <laughs> and feeling like, wow, like, I'm going to learn so much. And, and that was it. I, I didn't look back. And I think both companies were private equity owned or backed at least. So what did you learn about the culture and the board interactions? And did it influence management's view on strategy in any way? Yeah, that's a really great question. And the one thing I would say is because they were both private equity, less so probably at Badoo, which was slightly more um, informal at times until we were kind of putting in a, a more formal structure, but certainly um, at Quotient, the dynamics to me were fascinating. There was an element of management right from CFO to CEO and, and other senior execs really reporting on what they'd done. And there was kind of, you know, there were strategic conversations, but it, it did feel much more of a reporting like conversation or, or dynamic, I should say. And so actually it's probably my biggest learning from what I do now, which is for the first probably year of, of doing peanut, I was still in reporting mode, probably longer actually. And, and I forgot or didn't appreciate to kind of lift my head up and do some of the strategy stuff because I was very kind of in the detail. So that is something that I had to retrain uh, my brain to do because I was, I'd kind of been surrounded by that, that somewhat reporting atmosphere for a while. So um, yes, it was strategic. Yes, I definitely got into that very good discipline of pulling together very structured board meetings and thinking about what it was that I wanted to achieve. And so from that perspective, I think it was a great discipline. But in terms of really using your board, I think that was a skill that I came to learn much later. And in terms of personal challenge, you know, you came from being a lawyer in a prestigious law firm to all of a sudden rolling up your sleeves and being the general counsel. How did you find the personal journey? Do you know, it's so strange to become GC having been in M&A, because if you know any lawyers or anyone listening is a lawyer, when you're in a discipline, you very much live in your discipline. So it's quite unusual to kind of then step out of um, kind of M&A, for example, and then turn your hand to a bit of employment work or turn your hand to IP work or banking or whatever it might be. Um, and so obviously, as when, when you're a GC, you, you do all of it. But more than that, you also get other people within the business who come and talk to you about their 
tenancy agreement? Could you help me on this one question? Am I having a problem with my landlord? Or someone who's thinking about immigration and they just assume that as the lawyer, <laughs> you'll understand and you're like, uh, well, hang on, it's not exactly what I do, um, but leave it with me. So, so it's extraordinary from that kind of the range of, of, of stuff that you turn your hands to. What I think is most exciting about being a GC is how commercial it becomes. So, you know, the legal answer is the legal answer, but you'll always find a lawyer who can tell you the correct legal answer. The best part of, of being on the board is, is not just saying, here's, here's the right legal answer. It's saying, here's the correct answer and here are five different ways that we can get there. Or do we have to go that route at all? Or, you know, we can't get there, but what about here? Have you thought about this? And that is the part that I think really is challenging and pushes you that you really understand and learn from your founder or your CEO or whoever you're kind of reporting to at that point. Being pushed outside of my comfort zone to really think differently and think strategically is what has enabled me to lead my own company. Mm, great point. And how did Baidu scale? They were so viral. The product was such a viral, sticky product. And you have to cast your mind back to that period of time when the world and the landscape was a little bit different. So people used email marketing in a different way. People used kind of viral invite mechanisms in a different way, kind of taking it out of the, the do zone. But if you think about LinkedIn back in that day, LinkedIn was unbelievable. It was so kind of, you joined and all of a sudden you'd been connected with everyone in your email address book and you weren't really sure how. Like they, it was a different world, but that kind of mentality that was very um, pushing boundaries and it was very dynamic, it, it certainly led to companies scaling very quickly and in, probably in a slightly different ma manner than today, for better or worse. It was exciting because it was making us think about the ways in which you could engage with people in, in a totally different way. And it was always thinking about those degrees of separation and how to connect people. You know, you, I might not know you, but we might have a friend in common. Or I might not know the friend in common, but we might know another. But, you know, and, and all those kind of degrees of separation, I think, is what really led to, to scale. And also, they were thinking about this product and monetizing this product in a way no one was thinking about for that type of industry. So dating had traditionally always been um, subscription models. It had always traditionally felt quite grown up because of that. Um, people were kind of coming in, making a commitment to pay. And then once they were out, they were kind of out versus what Badoo uh, were doing was really thinking about this freemium model. It was fun. It was gamey. It was micro payments. You know, one of the very first monetization models for um, Badoo were um, short codes. I don't know if you remember like the SMS short codes and mm -hmm. people used to use them for ringtones. Well, Badoo were using that for kind of a way to facilitate chat between users um, and premium chat. Now that was so out of context to how pe other people were thinking, but a really good example of thinking about, okay, what are that demographic using and how do we kind of target them and how do we um, monetize them accordingly? So I think scale came from thinking about growth in a different way, but bearing in mind it was a different landscape, but also thinking about monetization in a different way to, to other companies in that field. And on that journey, what did you learn about leadership yourself or being on a, on a management team, on a high performance team? I think I learned very, very predominantly that managing up is as 
is as important as anything else. So being able to manage my relationship with, with Andre, being able to manage our relationship with the board um, was incredibly important, whether that meant over-communicating, whether that meant really reiterating where I felt there were points of um, disconnect or where we weren't agreeing on certain things, but, you know, accepting a point, but really making it, you know, recording your point of dissent, so to speak. Um, All of that kind of managing around personality, I think I learned very acutely. I think also, you know, just being adaptable and nimble to your environment and, and how that will impact on strategy. The emergence of moving from web to mobile was something that we were relatively slow to do, as was Facebook, as were other companies at the time, because, you know, they had so much riding on this kind of bigger network and bigger platform that they built. It meant that you're not always as nimble as you need to be or as agile as you need to be. And then you're going to get newcomers who can zip in and be quick and, and, you know, push these very quick releases. And you're on the back foot because you have this big clunky beast that you have to kind of rethink and redream and remodel, whether that's because of product or monetization or, or growth. And so I think it was just that kind of being aware of what the market is doing, being aware of what technology is doing and not being too late to the party was another kind of really important skill. And then in 2014, Bumble was founded and you became a board director in the early days. Can you talk about what's Bumble and how it's different than Baidu? So Baidu always kind of had this very strong and clear standing in Europe, Latam, Eastern Europe, Russia, beyond. But where it traditionally had not had any kind of foothold was the US and UK. It kind of been relatively slow there, having started in Spain and kind of taken that continental Europe growth very well. When we were thinking about evolving the product and evolving how we um, continue to grow, and also bearing in mind that kind of change in appetite for products. So we're now thinking about a world where people are living in apps, where Tinder exists, um, where I think Happen is coming out as well um, out of France. So there has been a real change in landscape in, um, at this point, 2013, in terms of how people are using dating. Also, it's been completely destigmatized. So it's gone from being you know, somewhat of an embarrassing secret that you met your partner um, on a dating platform to completely everyday standard fare, people having you know, weddings and babies as a result of, of Tinder mm. or whatever it might be. And so Bumble was really a change and a, a, an entry to market for the group into a different market being the US. We met Whitney and she is probably, she's the CEO of Bumble. She's probably the best marketeer, um, most strategic marketeer I think I've ever met. Um, she has a really good, strong understanding of growth and she has a good, strong understanding of people um, what drives people, I suppose, behavioral economics is a, is a more formal way of describing it. And so she was thinking about starting something. We started talking to her and we started building something and that something became Bumble. And so Bumble was really exciting for me to be a part of because it was the first time I'd been involved in a company from kind of inception as opposed to joining an already huge company. It meant kind of being first on the board, but it also meant 
certainly in the early days, spending a lot of time working with, with on a one-to-one basis to kind of think about what we were doing or what she was doing and how she was planning. And as the company really started to grow and evolve, obviously that became a more formalized board seat as opposed to kind of in the day-to-day operations. Whilst I did my day job at, at the day. <laughs> the difference with Bumble is it really very much had a very clear, strong brand identity strategy and message which was what if we take an existing product which is dating and thinking about a an infrastructure where people understand the ux and the ui of swiping and connection but what if we change it slightly so that it's very much female focused how do we think about the female acquisition journey for for acquiring um women on a a user acquisition journey, particularly for dating apps, is is traditionally very expensive. So how do we think about making a platform that they love, that really resonates, that they want to use, that drives down like the economics of of acquiring women users, but also really resonates with them in terms of a product that they want to use, where they feel empowered by it and where we're changing the status quo, keeping in mind that up until this point, most dating apps that you would come across had been created by um, men. So really thinking about, okay, what was what would that look like in a different guise? And you know, no one, no one I think could have predicted just how successful Bumble became. And I'm I'm so proud. How big is Bumble today? Must be enormous. Yeah, I I mean they had a, a huge exit this year, formalized this year to Blackstone, which valued the group, so Bumble and the the Badoo group at three billion. So um, wow. wow, it was incredible. Yeah, super exciting. And what did you learn about being on that board? I think that there is always going to be, particularly when you're working in a new company, and you know, I'm loath to call it a startup because it wasn't, you know, a startup in its most traditional sense. But with a new business like Bumble, it was very much experimental. So there were no expectations often in terms of the things we were trying. It was often, you know, try many things and see if one of them sticks. And that, I think, is where the real skill lies in kind of what try some things, watch what happens, double down on it if you need to, or kind of scrap it and move on. And, and I really like that approach um, and probably my, my key learning there. And also, you know, just the growing pains of going from a team which is, five people to 10 people to, you know, 300 people is, is fascinating journey to, to be a part of. Hugely. Yeah. And then in 2016, you founded peanut and I love the mission you're on. And so many of my friends are obsessed about peanut. Can you tell us about the idea and what you, you know, how you came up with the idea and, and, um, you know, what started you to found the company? Peanut was really, um, my own, way of creating and changing a status quo that I felt was just kind of there for the taking and and it wasn't happening was certainly not quickly enough for for my liking just before we started uh, what became Bumble I'd become a new mother so um, in 2013 or at the start of it I had my son Uh, sorry at the end of it I should say the end of 2013 I had my son and I think what happened uh, most predominantly was I was the first of my friendship group. So none of my friends were having babies and I I definitely felt the odd one out. As a result of feeling somewhat odd one out, I started to use or seek reassurance, support, friendship in other ways, whether that was Facebook groups or 
kind of more old school traditional forums um, just for advice because quite frankly I didn't know what I was doing and secondly because there was just this huge seismic shift from who I was in terms of my identity and so much of that tied to who I was at work to then going to being at home with my son and and that was pretty dramatic and so I really felt like the places I was turning to weren't really doing the job for me they felt like they were talking to a mother that didn't represent me um, felt like my mum to be honest it felt quite old-fashioned it felt out of date and it felt very fragmented right it was you know there wasn't just one place that I could go to it was a bit kind of all over the shop and so I just kept having this concept around is there a way to build a social network which is aimed at like mothers um, and connecting mothers, which has, for want of a better expression, a feminine touch to it, which doesn't feel like a product that's been created by, you know, young dorm frat boys, not anything against that, but, but you know, which, which then has become a little bit more generalized. How can I create something that actually feels like it's fit for purpose? And then I did what everyone does when they have an idea, which is absolutely nothing, went back to work and then got kind of sucked into everything. And we started building, you know, Bumble and life changed dramatically. I suppose as that journey evolved, I started to feel two things. One, whilst I was watching what we were doing with Bumble, I felt the real urge to do it myself, but for a product and a market that I was in. And secondly, that um, things were moving slowly in this market. Like I didn't feel people were evolving products for, for women and I really just wanted to do it. So in 2016, I left my very lovely role um, as deputy CEO at Badoo and stayed on the board of Badoo and Bumble actually for kind of the rest of that year whilst I paid my bills and, and got to work on what became Peanut. And so Peanut is a platform to connect women around each life stage. So whether that is motherhood, pregnancy, new motherhood, whether that's because you're going through um, fertility treatment, IVF, or you're trying to conceive, whether you're thinking about adoption, surrogacy, really thinking about how do we connect women so that whatever you're going through, you can join Peanut and find another woman who's experiencing that. You can find community and you can find support. And I suppose what I never could have predicted, kind of roll on to where we are now, is how launching in 2017 a product which you know, had a, a UI which looked very familiar to other products I'd been used to building, if I'm honest. It definitely had a, a dating-esque UI to really move into building a community and a social network, which has just been incredible. And I've learned so much. Um, it's, it's definitely evolving every day, but really now has pushed us to work towards this higher vision or this wider vision of Let's connect women at each life stage, whether that's menopause, whether that's chronic illness, whether that's because you're, you've got emptiness and your kids have gone off to college and you're thinking about you and what's next, but also doing it in a tone which isn't patronizing and it isn't kind of thinking about mommy. It's thinking about you as a woman and how we can build a product that resonates with you. And that means building a really thoughtful, sensitive uh, UI toolkit. So that we don't expect a woman who has just experienced miscarriage to use the same platform that a 16-year-old boy is selling his Supreme sweatshirt on or your Uncle John is sending it, like posting his holiday snaps. This is very geared towards 
her and her experience and, and tailoring the, the product accordingly. So I'm, I'm super proud of it and, and, and the team, actually. You should be massively proud, yeah. And I think I read you've got 1.6 million users? Yes. Um, it's, it's amazing. You, yeah, it's been amazing. And, you know, we're, we're still growing. We've got a lot more to do. We're US and UK focused, so we haven't really opened the product up more widely. And that's because I think in the best possible way, we are a team of product snobs. Like we really care about what we're building. And I care so deeply about the women who choose to use peanut. This isn't just, I have to use it because there's nothing else. This is, we're building it for them. It means that we have a really strong feedback loop with our user community. It means that every single woman who makes the decision to use peanut and, and who finds connection or friendship or support or whatever she finds from peanut it's no accident. Like we've, we've really thought about every detail and we've made sure that we found her in some way, whether that's because someone she trusts has told her about peanut, whether that's because she's read about us, whatever it might be, if she's found us and she's made that decision, we want her to have the best experience because we want women to stay with us for the long haul. You know, this isn't kind of short, sharp solution, although for some women, of course, it, it will be. This is about finding really meaningful connections. So it's been a journey, and but we're really only at the start. And do you think that product obsession is kind of driving the virtuous circle of, of growth? For sure. You know, this is something, and I, I really do mean it when I say that my life changed when, when I joined Badoo, because Badoo was at its heart a product company. And I think sometimes you, you get different types of companies. They can be a marketing company at its core. It can be a product company at its core. You really have to work out what company you want to build. And, and by the way, it's okay if you kind of know your audience and you know what will work. But for us, in order to win out against the giants that are already there, we have to be product obsessed because we have to be better or offer something different or more or more uh, nuanced than the kind of the big beasts that are out there. There's a reason that you can name the social networks that are leading on one hand, right? And so in order for us to really own this vertical social network, in order for us to really unbundle what's going on, on Facebook or anywhere else, we have to become kind of product obsessives and product specialists. And it's kind of the best compliment ever when someone says, I can't believe you're a team of 10 people and your product looks like that. I'm happy to report we are now slightly more. We've just done the biggest product flight um, higher we've ever done. So we're now the dizzy heights of 23. But even for me, that's a huge team when we've operated for so long on, you know, 10 people. Mm -hmm. And I mean, surely the growth hasn't come, you know, you launched the app and then all of a sudden you had 1.6 million users. <laughs> like how did you have any milestones, any inflection points that explain the growth? Yeah. It's amazing. Know, yeah. I, do you know, there were a couple of, uh, of things that I can really point to. I think the first is when we launched the second part of our product, so to speak. So the, the product is, is kind of split into three different areas. One is just, we call it discovery. So you can kind of see women around you and, and make those one-to-one -one connections. One is uh, what we used to call peanut pages, but kind of a, a more forum based platform. And then the other is peanut groups where, whether they're system generated or user generated, but kind of special interest groups. And at each release has, there's been a, a huge inflection point. So releasing um, peanut pages, the forum element to peanut 
saw a really big growth for us. And, and that's because prior to that, there was very little else for women to do. Come, find your friends, and then you're going to go back to your other preferred messaging, whether that's WhatsApp or iMessage or whatever it is. You know, we, we're not a chat platform in that way. So you're always going to revert to habit. So what is it that we could build that answers a need that we know is out there that will keep women coming back and back? And, and that was the first part. And then when we launched Peanut Groups, that was the kind of real next big inflection point, which was last year, which saw women kind of take control. That was the autonomy where women could start to create their own groups, where they could start to be admins for their own groups, where they could determine who joins, how to grow their group, what content they wanted to see in there. You know, they really became kind of um, community creators in that respect. And, And I think that's been a real moment for us and and something that we continue to really look at and work on because those women are choosing our platform to grow their community and whether that's because they have an interest in a specific hobby or they feel underrepresented um, in community at large um, we really see those groups really growing and and for me that's been so exciting and surely during COVID-19, you must be rethinking product prioritization. I imagine, you know, lots of people sadly have um, tons of anxiety. All of a sudden, certain treatments are no longer available. Mm. Um, how, how, you know, talk us through kind of the product um, calls you had to make. So COVID has been such an interesting time for us because, of course, the one demographic who want to talk about everything more than ever is women, particularly mothers. So whether that's because they're trying to conceive and they're having their treatments pulled or their adoption paused or they can't see their surrogate or whether it's women who are giving birth alone without their partners with them, whether it's because they're worried about their children, they have no childcare, they're trying to work. All of these issues have been really front of mind um, for our user base and really started like long conversations about them. What we quickly saw within the first kind of five weeks is that need to have a conversation and that need um, to discuss quickly turned to, I don't want to hear this anymore. I want to come to Peanut for respite. I want to come to Peanut to talk about anything but COVID. I need to break from this. And so we've had to be really adaptive on our, on our roadmap. We built very quickly a mute keyword feature so that women could basically zone out no, that's to do with COVID if they wanted mm-hmm. to. And that has been incredibly popular, not just in relation to COVID actually, but into, in terms of any words or any topics that they found particularly triggering. So we've done that. We also saw a complete change in dynamic of the product as well, because whereas women were using very frequently the kind of discovery part of Peanut, meeting and uh, making friends, obviously the moment you can't meet in real life, the moment that becomes less interesting. So you start using community more. You're asking like the community at wide, you're involving yourself in more of the forum or group debate, and you're not having those one-to-one connections. And so what we could see is people sharing Zoom links on community. Obviously, we don't want that. So we um, had to build, uh, we built peanut video chat for uh, one-to-one and for group video. The team, I have to say, like, you know, every founder will say this, but I I love my team so much. They're just so motivated and incredible. And they pulled some all-nighters to build the most beautiful video chat. And, you know, I'm going to like sing our own praises here to our own horn. But the UI of it is stunning. The quality is incredible. And, you know, the engineering team works so hard to pull that off in such an 
unbelievable amount of time. And for me, that just goes to show, you know, we will always have pressures on us as a very small business in comparison to the big giants who, you know, they can probably build something like that in a very short period of time, but they can't be as nimble as us because it's very quick for us to kind of pull the, together the team and get things released. So it's been really informative. We've had to push some things back. We were planning to launch um, Peanut Menno for women going through menopause. Um, that won't be coming until um, Q1 21. So we, we've had to push some things back in order to prioritize building some tools but those tools have been invaluable to the community so and also you know how exciting to like be building stuff like based on what our community are telling us they need yeah it's massively exciting and just just going back to you um you're clearly very passionate about culture how would you describe the culture culture is something that i am really passionate about because i've seen it done in a variety of ways i've seen it done well i've seen it done not so well and i've obviously taken i think which we all do a little bit of um, each place that i've been at and kind of thought right note to self in future i want that or i don't want that i'm super honest with my entire team that means that everyone sees the board decks everyone sees the pitch decks there isn't anything within reason um, the team couldn't ask me that I wouldn't share I'm very clear about what our burn is I'm clear about what our runway is and so that everyone feels like they really have ownership over what we're doing and how we're building and, and that's always how I've, I've run peanut obviously we're now in a period where we've just kind of made seven new hires in a quarter which seems like not a lot to many business and is huge to ours and um, we're not all together. Um, our engineering team have always been remote um, and they're distributed and we come together once a month where we do like a kind of hack day, build out some product features that we've been thinking about, have, a, have some kind of strategy um, discussions and, and then kind of see each other the following month. We haven't been able to do any of that. <laughs> so it's quite hard to onboard new team members and not have our usual FaceTime together, but we're making it work. We're having, you know, we had a like a virtual team build last week, which was hysterical, some kind of crystal maze-esque um, on, on Zoom and virtual dinner. You know, there are things you can do. We all had dinner together and, you know, I sent everyone a voucher for or credit for them to be able to get food and we all just sat and, and ate and had a drink and chatted and it's really important we continue to do that particularly as we bring on new members of the team because we are really close and, and we do all work on that transparency basis and you know for as long as possible that's how I want to keep it. And how do you define your own role? Are you now a CEO or are you the founder? Great question. CEO is um, well, definitely is the title. Um, I think because I don't know how everyone else views the term CEO, but having been deputy CEO for, and which was always a, such a strange title and people used to ask me and, you know, what does it mean? And I used to jokingly say, it's all the stuff Andre doesn't want to do that I do, but that was, <laughs> that was kind that was kind of true. So now I, I kind of do the stuff I want to do and all the stuff that I don't want to do as well. But I definitely see myself as um, CEO because I see myself as kind of heading the ship. And, you know, we, we talk about where we're trying to get to and it's my job to try and get us there. That's a hard job and it's a job I take really seriously and I love it. And, you know, I'll always be the founder of Peanut, but right now the CEO of kind of Peanut and helping us get to our 
achieve our vision is is way more important than any other kind of tag i think no that's a really powerful point and you successfully raised what like 22 23 million dollars um from index equity um some angels how have you found the whole fundraising process and working with vc firms so I have to say that raising from index and raising from EQT has been a real highlight. Like I, I genuinely, I really enjoy working with both firms for different reasons. Index are incredibly strategic. They're very helpful in kind of pulling my head out of the sandpit sometimes. If I'm like right down in the weeds, they really kind of push me back up to think longer term, to think bigger. Um, and they push me to do that. I think EQT are really, I've just got the best team in terms of product. They're so incredible in terms of product. They really want to get stuck in. They don't care if I have like a two hour call with them talking about the intricacies of, of some of uh, our product roadmap because they, they really love that. And, and that's really exciting for me. Um, and I've got some other great people on board too. And so I really have been fortunate. That said, you know, I went to take venture funding earlier than most. So I, I raised venture before uh, we launched. So pre-seed, pre pre-product, having bootstrapped for the, the first few months. And I did that for a couple of reasons, to be honest. One, because I didn't know any better. I didn't really know how you go about finding a friends and family round. Like who are these elusive friends and family that can write you these massive checks? Um, I just didn't have that. I didn't come from that network. And secondly, because I wasn't in a position where I could kind of self-fund altogether. I was a new mom and um, as well as I'd been um, remunerated when, when in my former life, you know, that wasn't enough to kind of kickstart the, the business that I knew I wanted to. And equally, we're not a revenue generative company right now. You know, we're pre-rev um, and that me and I knew we were going to be for some time. That means that um, everything's cash out just you know being completely straightforward about it and it means that raising is important and so I probably took venture earlier than I would advise anyone else to and the reason I say that is because it's kind of once you're on that path that's your path uh, and certainly until you're revenue generative and if you make a few bum decisions along the way absent some dramatic changes or, or something time consuming you kind of just have to put up with it. So I think time again, there are there are some decisions I might not have made early days, but that said, some of the decisions we've made subsequently have been the most incredible decisions because we are where we are now with incredible world-class investors who are pushing us to be the best we can be, to be this you know social network for women globally, um, which is a bigger ambition than we could have hoped our investors to have with us, you know, in those early days, but because of taking venture earlier um, and because I do see that access to, to um, funding, particularly those early checks to be challenging for a lot of um, underrepresented founders. It's something that has frustrated me for a long time. I was very fortunate to have participated obviously in the Bumble Blackstone exit earlier this year. And so using some of that funding, we're setting up a fund called uh, Peanut Start Her to write some of those micro checks. So if you don't have friends and family who write those kind of 25K, 30K checks um, to get you started, Peanut Start Her will. Really thinking about 
women, underrepresented founders and, and mothers who just don't really have a spare 20 grand hanging around because everything that you earn kind of goes back into your, your children and your family. So thinking about how we can try and do our part to change the dynamic of founders and, and to try and change it a little bit. That's incredibly powerful. And just briefly talk to me about your philosophy to monetization since you mentioned it. So monetization for me is something that I, I actually am really excited about for Peanut. Everyone thinks that when we're, you're building a network, particularly around motherhood or, or women, there is an ad model play. And, and that's not to discount the ad model play altogether, but that's just to say, I think that's just, um, it's quite narrow and it's quite reductive. Some of the most exciting things that we did at Badoo and Bumble um, and beyond, we're really pushing ourselves to think about monetization um, in terms of a freemium model with premium features and monetizing your user, gamifying the experience, putting the control um, in the hands of your user as to what they were going to pay for and why. And it really saw the most incredible and successful path. Bumble made an extraordinary amount of money month one we turned on monetization. And so really for me, it's about knowing when that right time to turn it on is. But we've got so many exciting concepts. I love watching what's coming out of Asia in terms of monetization. Um, I think they have some really phenomenal um, monetization paths where they're not just thinking, is it ad model? Is it freemium? Is it, you know, what does it look like? It's a combination. It's, it's several streams. If you think about WeChat, mm. they have one ad a day. That's okay. Maybe everyone knows where they are with one ad a day, but they layer on top of that. I think it's 30% of revenue then comes from the freemium element to the product. And then another 30%, which is on subscriptions or gamification. So there are so many different ways to layer it. And that for me is, is very exciting, but uh, I can promise our users, it's not going to be the ad model that everyone expects because The reason women come to Peanut is for the safety of what we do and the safety of their data. If you're telling other women on our platform your very intimate details about your journey to motherhood, your IVF, your miscarriage, whatever it might be, the last thing you want to do is be served an ad which is telling you about an IVF clinic down the road. And we're so aware of it. We're so conscious of why women have made that choice to come to us that we will never prejudice that decision by kind of sticking uh, an ad in there it's not it's not it doesn't fit with what we're building love that focus there and how do you energize yourself oh gosh it's really hard i mean, I mean you seem pretty high energy but you know <laughs> you must be down at times yeah but look i am i am a high energy person i am excited about what we do and you know ultimately it's why i wanted to build peanut in the first place i wanted to feel like if i'm going to get up and spend my whole you know life building something it has to be for a mission that I really believe in equally if I'm going to spend hours away from my kids during the day it has to count for something it has to be because I'm showing them that if there's a change you want to make you can be the one to do it if you're working hard and, and you keep trying and you have that power and you have that um, ability but equally you know I want to make it count if I'm going to be away from them at least let it be for something good But yeah, it's hard. Sometimes it's hard. I've, I've had moments during COVID where I miss being with my team. It's felt like Groundhog Day. It has felt really, really challenging. But I'm very fortunate. You know, I, I have a, an amazing driver, which is it takes one woman on Peanut to message me or message me on social or email me or I read something where I'm like, we did that. 
and and that's it that's all the energy you need and and that is something that it just doesn't get old it doesn't get boring that it's it's as thrilling to me now as it was when we launched Michelle, I think we've got amazing content and I really, really love your passion and your product focus and obsession. Um, so thanks very much for taking the time. It's been really fun. Thank you so much for having me. 